0: I remember very early on as a young Jesus follower, my earliest Sunday schooling, we were taught this principle. As a Jesus follower, you are in this world, but not of this world ever heard that? We are in this world, but you are not of this world. That was our marching orders as young Jesus followers. Now, that was accompanied by a uh, fairly sizable list of things that we were not to do, right? Sins. That's what we would describe them as. Now, the, the longer I walked this out, the more I realized most of the list we were given really were sins as God defined sins. There were a few on the list that God really didn't say were sin. We just thought they might lead to sin, so we called them sin to keep us away from it, right? Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Anyway, in this world, but not of this world. That language actually comes from John chapter 17. It's a place where Jesus is praying for his disciples and not just the 12, but he's actually praying for us. You'll see that if if you read it. But here's what I've found. I'm afraid that sometimes that language of in but not of may actually lead us to miss the point of what Jesus is actually saying there. Let me read it to you. John chapter 17 It starts in verse 14. He says, I have given them your word. Now this is Jesus praying for us. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are, here's the language, not of the world. Any more than I am. That's Jesus of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just in case you missed it before. Even as I am not of it, sanctify them by the truth. Set them apart by the truth, Father. Your word is the truth. That's what determines it for us. But look at this. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. In other words, when the language is we are in the world but not of the world, it almost sounds like, okay, we got to be in this world, but let's just make sure we stay separated from it. You know what I mean? It's this hunkered down, bunker safe faith with a mentality that says, out there it's dangerous, so let's don't engage out there. But that's not what Jesus said. He said, I'm sending you out there. I'm sending you into the world. So, maybe a way we could phrase it that I think is a little more fitting for what Jesus actually said in but not of. That's true. But what Jesus actually said is, You're not of this world, but you are sent into this world. That changes the game. You're not of this world, but you are sent into this world because you are supposed to have a faith that engages the world. And today, that's what I want to help us understand a little bit more. And I think we can understand it maybe from a place that might be a little bit surprising. Not the New Testament, but the Old. We are currently reading through the book of Jeremiah. That's where we find ourselves as we're reading through the story of God. And so just to give you a little background, Jeremiah was a prophet of God, which when I think prophets, I often think megaphone, right? They are the ones who are declaring what God says to his people. But Jeremiah comes along at a time when God's people are captive. And many of them are exiled by the superpower of that day, Babylon. And so Jeremiah is writing this letter to God's people whose lives have been thrown into disarray. They have, many of them been ripped from their families, they have been taken from their land and they are living now as followers of God in a foreign land. So here's their scenario. They've got to know how to navigate their faith in this new culture where most people don't believe what they believe. Well, that's not relevant for us today at all, is it? Like, sure it is. How do you navigate being on a ball team as a Jesus follower when most of that ball team is not Jesus followers? They don't believe like you believe. How how do you navigate a classroom where most people in that classroom do not believe like you believe? How do you navigate the boardroom where most people are not playing by the same values that you are playing by? I think this is right on for most of us live today. So here's what it says, Jeremiah chapter 29 is where we're going to read this story today. Let's pick it up with verse one. Here's what Jeremiah, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles. Now I'm highlighting some words here for you. There's there's gonna be a reason. So he's writing to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests and to the prophets and, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar has carried them into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Let's keep reading. This was after King Jehoiakim and the queen mother, the court officials and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. That's an interesting list of people. Will you know who those are? They're the leaders. They're the influencers for Israel. And so the Babylonian strategy was often, if you really want to take a nation over, like, not just, not just overpower them militarily, but if you really want to just do away with that nation, here's the strategy. Take the leaders. Take the leaders. Take the people who influence the culture, the craftsmen even, You take those leaders, those professionals, you take them out of their land, you move them to Babylon, you teach them a new way of thinking and a new way of doing things. And if you conform the leaders to your philosophy, then you have conformed the nation to your philosophy and you own them. That's what's happening. That's what's happening to God's people. Well, the Jews knew that. They know that's the strategy. And so what we know from history is that when they first get to Babylon, they they attempt to live outside of Babylon. They attempt to settle there. At the same time, there are some false prophets who are showing up, saying to God's people, hey, God's going to get you out of here before long. It's just going to be a short period of time, so just just hunker down, hold on, because God's going to get you out of here before long. Well, I don't know about you, but that's what I want to hear, so I would tend to believe what they're saying, and that's exactly what was happening. Along comes Jeremiah, through whom God sends a letter, and I think the people are shocked by what God says in the letter. Here's what he says, verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile. I thought Nebuchadnezzar carried them in. We'll come back to that. Here's what he says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. He teaches us something about a faith that engages the world. A faith that engages the world means that I will intentionally settle here in other words do not separate so so get the picture here's what God says to his people you're in Babylon you're in exile but you know what I want you to do settle there settle there build houses okay that takes money that takes effort That takes time. You don't build a house if you're moving on quickly, right? Plant gardens and eat from them. It's this imagery of establish a system where where you can sustain yourself. Marry. In fact, some of you are going to have grandkids there, he says. It's this picture of I want you to intentionally settle where you are. Do not separate from the Babylonians. Okay, well, how does that apply to us today? We are reminded in the New Testament, it is interesting language. We find it in a lot of places. The one I'm gonna show you is 1 Peter, but the same word is used over and over again. Peter addresses us, God's kids, as God's elect exiles. That's how we're described. Exiles scattered throughout the provinces. And the word that is translated exiles, we, we would put a couple of words together today to describe what that Greek word is. It means a resident alien. That's what it means. A resident alien. In other words, a resident, you're, you're not just a tourist who consumes while you're there. You're not just holding your nose until you can move to a better place. You're not just moving up the housing ladder, right? You're moving to this house in order to, in order to establish it and then so that you can sell that and move to the next house in order to, 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 in order to move to the next house. You're not just moving up the housing ladder. He says, I want you to settle there. But you are resident aliens in that it is still not your ultimate home. So in what we've already read, you you picked up on it because I tried to pause to help you catch it. In verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was the one who carried them into exile. But by verse 4, who said he carried them into exile? God. God. Well, which one was it? It's this picture of, yes, social forces brought you here, but God's saying, I was using that. Now, why were they in exile to start with? Because they had rebelled against God. They had, they had refused to listen to God and God allowed them to be turned over. But even in their captivity, God's saying, I've got a purpose going on here. I'm doing something in you here. By verse 11, God gives us the plan. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now that's the verse from Jeremiah 29 that we put on the coffee mugs and the pictures and the phone. This is the verse we like. God says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to prosper you. I'm, I'm, you're, I'm not going to harm you, right? I, I got a future and a hope. This is the verse we like, but we miss the fact that it's in the context of the rest of this chapter. God says, even in exile, I'm still doing something powerful in you and for you. But get this, I'm also doing something for Babylon. Here's what I need to ask you. Do you understand that as a Jesus follower, Where you live is supposed to be bigger than the fact that you like a house or you like the land. Do you understand that where you live is supposed to be a bigger factor involved than just, well, we we really like this house. Now, is there anything wrong with liking a house? No. With contentment, lots of times we're able to like where where we are. Nothing wrong with enjoying a home. Nothing wrong with enjoying the land. All I'm saying is, as a Jesus follower, there's actually a next level of purpose that you live where you live. It's the people who live around you. And the question is, Do they know the good news of Jesus? Second question, do you know if they know the good news of Jesus? And I think so many times we just tend to go, well, but they're they're, they're such good people, man. My neighbors are such good people. And I'm saying if your neighbors are good people, you need to see yourself as blessed. But you also just need to be reminded that good people are not What gets any of us into heaven. It's not what gets any of us into heaven. I heard somebody say the other day, it was like the question of why do bad things happen to good people? And the answer came back, well, it's only happened once. I love that. Why do bad things happen to good people? There's only actually been one good people that bad things happen to. The rest of us Don't get to stack up our goodness at a level that says we deserve to be, right, in the glory and the presence of God. No, we all fall short. The only way our goodness is a part of getting us into heaven is when that goodness has been preceded by all the forgiveness of the wrong and the sin that has taken place in our life. And God's goodness has now been imputed to us that when God sees us, he sees his goodness. I'm just reminding you that God calls us to settle where we are, live where you are, invest where you are in your time in sharing the gospel. Maybe it's longer than you planned. Maybe some of you right now are in a a season of your life where you had already planned to move out of this house to move to the next house because this house was just a launching pad to the next Maybe the reason it hasn't happened yet is it could be that God is up to something bigger than a real estate profit. He might be doing something in you and he might be ready to do something in your neighbor. The question is, will you settle there long enough to find out? Hmm. A faith that engages the world means I will intentionally settle here, do not separate. But God goes on to say that a faith that engages the world means also, I will respectfully resist here, do not syncretize. Syncretize is the word that I'm using to to say, when it comes to the values of the kingdom of God, they do not look like the values of this world. They should not look the same. All right, so here's what God tells them in verse 10. He says, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed, now that's a whole lot longer than the false prophets. The false prophets were like, "Ah, a year or two, we're gonna be out of here. God's like, no, 70 years, When those are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. In other words, eventually he's saying to his people, I'm gonna bring you back home. I'm gonna bring you back to Jerusalem. I'm gonna bring you back to Israel. He also, by chapter 50 of Jeremiah, is saying, and if the Babylonians do not repent of their sin, I am going to judge them. In other words, big point Babylon is not your ultimate home. So although I call you to settle here, don't just become like all of them when it comes to what matters most to you. You you, you know how, well, I I should probably say, there used to be a day where there was this thing called the Olympics that happened right? And live sports. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but there was live sports that used to take place. When you watch the Olympics, one of the cool things I think about the Olympics is we cheer for sports that we do not watch any other time of the year, right? Like synchronized swimming, like, I got to tell you, that's probably the only time I've ever watched synchronized swimming. It's like, but in the Olympics, my wife and I will be watching. We'll be like, yeah, right? You're just screaming for synchronized swimming. What's synchronized swimming? They put all these, all these swimmers in the pool and, and all of them do the same thing right? Every move, they they seem like they can hold their breath for like 17 minutes, right? Because they're upside down, they're side, but the point is they're all moving exactly the same at the same time. God is saying to his people, that is not what it's supposed to look like when you are in the pool with the world. I'm calling you to get in the pool, but you're not supposed to be moving the same way. The Bible uses another metaphor that I think is the perfect metaphor to help us understand this. It is the word ambassador. He says we are ambassadors. Now, come on, you can get what an ambassador is. An ambassador lives in country B but represents country A, right? That's the way it worked. They live in another country, B, but, but they represent country A. But an ambassador better learn the language of country B. If you're going to be effective, you got to understand, you, you better appreciate the culture of country B. Right? You're actually trying to build bridges with country B. But in all of that, you never forget that you represent the values and the interests of country A. And the Bible says that's exactly what it's supposed to be like for those of us who follow Jesus in this world. Philippians chapter 3 reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven. We belong to a kingdom that sees differently than the rest of this world. So in all the major issues that that our world wrestles with from sex to money to power, our view is supposed to be different. So when it comes to a physical relationship, I'm doing best to speak in code until children's church is reinstituted, right? So, So when it comes to a physical relationship in the kingdom of God, it's not take, it's give. It's not about an independence. It's actually about even willing to lose an independence where it's not one, but now one or two. It's called marriage. When it comes to money in this world, it's it's your money. You decide what you do with it. In the kingdom of God, I don't own any of it. In the kingdom of God, none of it belongs. To me, when it comes to power in this world, you use your power to get ahead. Everybody knows that. But in the kingdom of God, you use your power to leverage it for those who do not have power. It's supposed to be a different perspective in the kingdom of God. And so the message that that God sends through Jeremiah to his people, I want you to settle. I want you to engage there. But don't let it be your ultimate home. Don't assimilate to its values. And don't let your Christian distinctiveness be lost. Here's what frightens me often. There are plenty of people who go to church. And I'm going to be honest with you, there are even plenty of people who go to our church, who go to church for inspiration, but how they operate and see things like sex, money, and power looks just like the world. And that's not faith. And it's certainly not a faith that engages the world. One more I've got for you. A faith that engages the world means I will intentionally settle here, do not separate, respectfully resist here, do not syncretize, but third, sacrificially love here, do not be selfish. Sacrificially love here, do not be selfish. Here's why I say that. If you look in verse 7, back in Jeremiah 29, he says, Also, I want you to seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Those two words that are translated there, peace and prosperity, are actually one Greek word or one Hebrew word, and you will recognize the Hebrew word, shalom. That's the word. Now, there is no one English word, that encompasses what, what shalom means. It is it is this picture of a full thriving, everything thriving together, right? Spiritually, economically, psychologically, socially, in every way. And God says, I want you to seek that for where you live. I want you to seek that for your town, your city. Some of you know this. We've talked about it before. In Western society, it's all about the individual. That's our world. It's all about the individual. In non-Western society, which we see this from the various places we travel in the world, it's not about the individual. It's about the family or the tribe or the clan. Now, what I've come to realize is that in both of those views, you can still be selfish. Because you can either make it, it's just about me, or you can make it, it's just about us. It can still be selfish, right? Well, what happens when you do that in relationships? What, what happens when you do that in a marriage where, where one says, hey, it's me first? What happens when you do that in a friendship where one of the friends says, hey, it's me first? Eventually, that relationship crumbles Yeah, in the kingdom of God, it's about self-denial. In the kingdom of God, it's about others first. It's about sacrifice. You can't do justice for the downtrodden unless those who are not as downtrodden are willing to share. There is a sacrifice. Now, I realize that some people might argue that this text in Jeremiah is selfish because the language is if Babylon prospers then what? Then you will prosper too. And a lot of people read that and they go, "Well, really this is just selfish. He's just saying do good for them because it's going to end up being good for you." And I would I would agree with you. Except I won't because there's one word that proves it's not. Verse 7. Pray. Pray to the Lord for Babylon. Hmm. Do you know you can't really pray without growing to love? You can't really pray for somebody without love becoming a part of that. The Jews knew they were supposed to pray for Jerusalem. Psalm 122, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But to pray for Babylon means you are praying for your enemies. Enemies which in some cases may have taken you away from your family, even taken the lives of your family. I I don't know, I'm convinced that Jeremiah 29 might be the closest thing in the Old Testament to what Jesus says in the New Testament in Matthew chapter five, when he says, love your, what, enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. Wow. See, I don't think that's what they expected in the letter. God said, I want you to move in. I want you to pray for these people. I want you to share your faith, love the city, pour yourself out, even for those who oppose you. And even when it comes to blessing a place that you didn't create the mess. Remember when you were a kid, some of you can relate to this, and your parents said to you, clean up that mess. And do you remember the one time that you tried this line, but I didn't make that mess? And your parent came back with a response that from that point on, you never tried that line again. You just clean up the mess. Some of you grew up in that time frame. I see that missing from households today, right? I'm convinced that that might need, now I'm not talking about kids cleaning up all their parents' messes. That's not what I'm talking about. But learning to clean up a mess that you didn't make is actually a principle in the kingdom of God. I recently heard the story, the true story of a small church just north of here. It's actually in the Waldo area. They, they were small enough that they just met in a house. But the story is that they began to look around them at the needs of their city. And when you live in that territory, one of the major needs was the Kansas City school district. And they're just watching schools closing down like Hale Cook Elementary. And I learned recently about how this small church began praying to God on behalf of that community and that school. And when they started praying, behind the scenes, they started rallying parents, getting community support, finding teachers. It was the church that did it. And five years later, and then to this day, Hale Cook Elementary is a fully functioning, vibrant school with promise. Because a young church with no skin in the game, a young church who didn't make the mess, said, we're going to make it our mess. Now, I don't know all the stories attached to that, but my heart immediately went to, man, I wonder how many times they got to share the gospel of Jesus in the middle of that. Because come on, when you're gathering with people and you're trying to rally people to move, right? All the love and the sacrifice and the time and the energy that that little church was pouring into that. How many times did somebody go, why are you doing this? And oh my goodness, when they ask us why, we get to tell them about the Jesus who moved into the neighborhood and settled the Jesus who was willing to deal with a mess that he didn't create but was willing to embrace us in our mess how many times did they get to share that come on the greatest need in the community is not the school the greatest need in the community is Jesus but when the church cares about all the needs, then doors get opened to be able to communicate the greatest need. By the way, about a year ago, that church shut its doors. It actually doesn't exist anymore. And when we hear those things, it's almost like we go, oh, man. Obviously, they didn't do something right. Obviously, I man, all that was for nothing. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. When Jesus said he builds his church and the gates of hell can't even stop it, come on, he's speaking of an eternal factor when the church moves and loves and engages and settles. like It's eternal. He's not talking about the church might meet in one place for the rest of its life or even be that particular group of people. No, he's talking about the church, his church. It is eternal. The school's not eternal. One day it's, it's going to crumble. But what is eternal is the sacrifice and the love and the sharing of the gospel that probably changed numerous lives in that whole process. I'm saying these days, man, it is sad for me when I'm hearing from, from pastors and churches in so many places, it seems like churches care more about keeping their own doors open than to open doors for others. Sometimes it's hard to get church people to even clean up messes that they didn't create inside the church, much less outside. I think Jeremiah 29, if it does anything, it it leads me to to say, come on, as Christians, we got to stop walking around feeling like and acting like we are victims, remembering some sort of good old days when we were in power. Like, stop, what are we called to do? Well, we are in this world, but we are not of this world. But here's the clear instruction. We are not of this world, but we are sent into this world. We are called to pour ourselves out, even though that may mean possibly being rejected for standing for what God values. Come on, some of us, some of us, we build the friendships, we build the relationships, we're on the teams, we're in the classrooms. But but the step then is to stand where God stands. That's what Jesus did for us while we were yet enemies He died for us. We didn't prosper because Jesus prospered. We prospered because he laid down his life for us. Now, come on, here's, here's what I want you to hear me say today. I do not have all this figured out. But what I am absolutely certain of is that this is a major thing right now that God, I believe, wants us as a church to see and begin to act in. I'm not saying we haven't before. I'm just saying I think there are some next steps that God wants to move his church into our towns, into our communities, into our neighborhoods. And I'm committing today to go, I don't have all this figured out, but I'm gonna push us and I'm gonna pull us and whatever it takes, come on, this is what a faith that engages the world looks like. There is a temptation here. There is a temptation here that when we hear a message like this, we, we zoom out and we try to stay in the know of everything that's happening. And in a season like this one that we're living in, we can actually quickly become so overburdened that we don't do anything. Because right now there is a lot of stuff going on in our world, my word. I wanna challenge you to maybe do yourself a small favor and decide that to some degree you're gonna start unplugging in order to actually plug in. And what I mean by that is right now, come on, there, there is this 24-7 endless access to information that your soul was never made to bear. And if you actually wanna seek shalom in the place where you live, you may have to start tuning out s- at least some of the endless Info that comes your way so that you can tune into the actual needs that are really close to you. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You you walk around like this all the time. I'm saying you got to stop endlessly reading so that you can start doing something. Yeah, you need to be informed. But sometimes you got to tune out everything extra so that you can tune in to where it matters most. And in the hopes (laughs) that there is a football season, I'm saying stop being an armchair quarterback and actually step on the field and be a part of making a difference in somebody's life. You don't have to solve the whole world somebody's life I challenge you to start looking around your town your workplace your neighborhood your family it may not be your mess but I think God's calling the church to do something about the messes that we didn't even create because that is a faith that engages the world It is the kind of faith that leads to supernatural influence. It's the kind of faith that causes the world to ask the question what do you have that enables you to live this way?